This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, author and community organizer Saket Soni discusses his book, The Great Escape. He retells the story of how a group of men from India came to the U.S. as guest workers and became trapped in forced labor. He's interviewed by Migration Policy Institute senior fellow, Musafir Chishti. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we are here to discuss the book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America by my friend Saket Soni. Uh, Saket is a nationally renowned organizer, organizer of labor rights and immigrant workers. Uh, he heads an organization called uh, Resilient Force, where he <clears throat> builds skilled workforce to carry out America's climate adaptation and disaster recovery. Uh, but he gained national reputation for protecting and organizing workers who work in various uh, mm. projects around the country to rebuild homes and schools and cities after various natural disasters. He is, uh, uh, as I said, a nationally recognized organizer. He has been described as the architect of the next labor movement by USA Today. And the Faust Company called him the most creative, one of the most creative people uh, of 2022. And I'm sure he'll remain one of 2023 also. Uh, but we're here to discuss his book. It's a book that tells the story of a group of Indian workers who took debts and all kinds of goodbyes to their families in India to rebuild uh, American cities, schools, and homes after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and they were promised all kinds of pieces of the American dream, including a green card. But instead, they found themselves in some semi-captivity. And this is a story about extremely strategic organizing that got them out of their captivity by very effective both communication, legal, and organizing strategy that Saket led. In um, one of the book reviews done by Farrah Stockman, an opinion writer at the New York Times, she said, The Great Escape is a must-read for anyone organizing a union drive across cultural or racial lines. But even readers who have never thought about labor issues before will find themselves sucked into the drama. So, Saket, this is about the book, which I must tell you sort of reads like a novel from the very first page. It draws you in. It drew me in into the stories uh, when I first saw the reluctant obligatory call that a worker in Kerala was trying to talk about an arranged marriage and the middle of the call he found his romantic flame to the story of an astrologer who told the worker that his fortune 
lay in a foreign country. And so people would not think that you're reading a story about uh, the, the a very important chapter in labor history of our country uh, because it's so thrilling right in the beginning, but it draws you into the nuances of what it takes for people to make the journeys across oceans to find work and hope and dreams in America and what it takes to fulfill those dreams and in many cases those dreams do not happen. So we're here talking about the book and before we talk about the book I do want to talk to you about writing of the book because as I'm sure many of our viewers have wanted to write a book. We all think and salivate about writing a book but writing a book is different from thinking about writing a book is different than actually writing a book. So how does a person like you, who is a very busy, sharp-elbowed, microphone-in-his-hand organizer, decide to write a book? And what does it take to actually write the book when you have such a difficult, all-consuming job? Essentially, if you would, if you would answer, when did you first think you had a book in you? And what did it take to get the book out in the pages that our viewers are going to read? Well, um, I can tell you, Moose, it took um, 16 years to live this story and four years to write it. So it, it was not a uh, quick book to write. Um, I'm thrilled to be talking to you today, uh, especially, Moose, because I don't know if you remember this, but right at the beginning of my organizing career when I was a young rabble-rouser, green behind the ears. Um, I actually came up to visit you in, um, in New York uh, to sit at your feet and get your advice. And, uh, and basically, uh, the, the message I got was uh, uh, to keep organizing and to make something of myself, you know. And, and so I went and wrote a book. And, uh, and I'm so thrilled that you read it and, uh, and we're now talking about it. You know, um, one of the things that happens when you're an advocate or an organizer, whether you're a lawyer um, representing clients or working in a social service agency, uh, you know, uh, working at a shelter, whatever it is you do, when you're advocating on behalf of people, uh, you get to know a little corner of their lives. You don't really get to peer too deep into them. Uh, you don't have that luxury because the campaign is all-encompassing or uh, the food just needs to keep getting served at the food shelter, whatever it is you're doing, you wish you got to know people better. With this group of people, I was in a foxhole with them for three years. You know, I, I got to know them better than most advocates are, are lucky uh, to, to get to know their clients, their represent, you know, the people they're representing, their members. And, and I always, the stories always stayed with me. And, um, um, and I just always thought, um, if I could get others to know these men the way I know them, um, if I could get readers to profoundly recognize them, um, people would be enriched. So that's what I, what I set out to do. Um, I had to change my habits quite a lot to write the book. Um, I have never been a morning person. Uh, and to write this book, I uh, would get up every day at 4 and write from you know 4.30 to 8.30, uh, four hours a day from uh, f for four years. Um, you know, the book is based on 
an enormous number of interviews, the kinds of details, rich details, um, that the men, their families, uh, and even my adversaries that are in the book shared with me, um, was all through these really, really deep interviews. I'd fly out to places um, and over dozens of interviews um, collect really, really rich detail. Um, And then the book is really based on a sprawling piece of litigation. Um, And so it took going over documents and backing up every fact through something that was connected to a court document. So it was a a really, really sprawling endeavor to write this book. Um, It's not for everyone, uh, but but in retrospect, I'm, I'm really, really glad I did it. Uh, yeah, no, it's not for everyone, but it's for a lot of people. It's for a lot of people who like stories. It's a lot of people who write like human stories. And it's a lot of people who want to understand how we can appreciate people whose work we depend on in our daily lives, from people who would harvest our crops to process our food to you know, make our food produce it and then deliver it to our homes. It's the story about workers that we take for granted and the travails that they face and what it takes to champion their causes. So it covers a lot of ground. But was there a particular moment in your, in, while you were working as an organizer, especially in this campaign, that you thought that this book must be written? Yes. um, It was when I started getting to know the workers very, very deeply. We were, um, you know, uh, I was meeting with workers through a series of clandestine meetings uh, when they were trapped in a labor camp in Mississippi. And um, I was trying to convince them to meet with me and tell me how they landed up there. The the book really starts with, and my connection to these workers, started with a mysterious midnight phone call um, when I was in post-Katrina Gulf Coast. Um, and, and, And I was running a small nonprofit, a small labor rights nonprofit. And in the middle of the night, I got a phone call from a man who insisted on remaining anonymous, but but I could tell from the way he said my name that he was from India. Mm-hmm. Um, that man um, uh, told me a little bit of what he was experiencing. He said he was trapped and being held captive by a company. He needed help. That set me on the trail of uh, what ended up becoming the largest, one of the largest cases of human trafficking in modern U.S. history. And I was so busy with the workers, there was no book in sight, But the first time I realized there was a much deeper story here was, you know, as I was getting to know the workers really deeply, uh, I started to realize that their true indignities that they faced at the hands of the company um, were things that no one could ever see. You had to really get to know them deeply, get to know their interiority to understand. So there was one worker named Ebi Raju. And he told me the story of his worst day working for this company um, in, in, in something close to captivity. He, he described how one day he was on a platform 20 feet high and uh, he was um, doing a very dangerous welding job. He was getting, um, you know, he was under a lot of pressure building this oil rig. And he got a phone call and he picked up. 
and it was his wife 10,000 miles away in India. He left his wife for this green card opportunity um, and was told by the company that he'd get, get a green card in nine months. That never came. His wife had been pregnant when she left. And now his wife was calling saying she was going into surgery. She was just about to be operated on. And then the phone clicked off. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ebi Raju, this worker, didn't see his wife again and didn't meet the son that was born that day for another three years. Mm-hmm. And when Ebi described that to me in the middle of this campaign, um, I realized that he and so many of the other workers had these profound love stories, these profound stories of the journey they went on uh, to America, had profound motivations for those journeys, um, and, and none of it um, you know, was going to be talked about uh, really in the day-to-day of a campaign uh, but I stored them in my head and wanted to return to them uh, after after the workers finally won their campaign. Great. And you stored them there in your head, but they are very vivid on the pages and very nuanced in the kind of, um, you know, sacrifice that people went through and the decision-making for leaving their their loved ones behind for this pursuit of dream. But how did you get them so right and so nuanced? And did you actually take notes after you're doing each of these interviews? Or Oh, how? yes, I, I, took, I took very, very detailed notes. You know, um, I knew the basic story from living through the campaign. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of the um, events of the book uh, were events that, I was there for either as a participant or a witness. Um, so uh, the first worker who called me anonymously, who led me to the labor camp, um, you know, um, he then wound up connecting me to hundreds of other workers. Mm-hmm. Um, those hundreds of workers told me their story in clear terms. They were living in India. They were career migrant workers who would go from India back and forth to the Gulf Coast. Um, when uh, one day recruiters arrived in India and promised them green cards and good jobs and told them that it would cost them $20,000 $20, a piece. And this is a, a lifetime, even multiple generations of savings in India. And the workers took high interest loans. They borrowed from relatives, from from uh, uh, usurers and moneylenders. Um and loan sharks. But when they arrived in the United States, um, they found themselves uh, not on green cards, but on temporary visas. There were no green cards in sight. And and it turned out the workers who were uh, sold an American dream were dropped into an American nightmare. I saw pieces of their nightmare. Um, In the labor camps, they were working round-the-clock shifts. They were living in trailers, 24 to a trailer, on, in, a, in a facility that the company themselves called a man camp facility, which was constructed on a toxic dump. So I, I, I heard all of that at the time. I took deep notes. I, uh, you know, I, um, that was all very corroborated. But what, was, what took a much deeper dive during the book writing process um, was the internal lives of the workers, mm-hmm. you know, their, uh, their family histories, their love stories, the stories of... Um, what kept them going and what broke them down during their American journey. And that absolutely took hours and hours of interviews, um, you know, uh, detailed notes, um, and 
Um, and actually, Moose, uh, one of the interesting things about it was that, um, you know, I was doing not just interviews with the principal uh, people, uh, but their relatives to cor- corroborate the fact. So one worker, Murgan, who's in, this, in the book, told me the story that you alluded to, which is that um, an astrologer told him he'd find his future wife in a north-facing home um, at a certain radius from his own house. He he went on a summer-long hunt for this bride-to-be. He found her. Uh, and when he found her uh, and, and therefore had faith in the astrologer's prediction, he remembered the other half of what the astrologer prophesied, which was that after his wedding, he'd soon leave for a distant land, a distant country, and that's where he would find his future. So I corroborated this with his wife. Um, you know, I, I heard about others in his family who remembered this. So it was a very, very deep and detailed interview process. That's right. I'd, uh, I had to tell you the, the description of the phone call uh, with a potential arranged marriage bride, which was done so reluctantly and like a chore that his mother had forced him. And suddenly that call turning into a romantic flame. That kind of memory and the, by, but the, the uh, story by the astrologer that you're going to find your fortune in a foreign land, I thought was kind of the hopes that keep people alive in the man camp, that you have to cling to things like that to tell yourself that this is all worth it. So, but I noticed that you put a lot of emphasis here on love stories. Why are love stories important to a narrative like this? Well, you know, every immigrant story is a love story because um, every immigrant story is a story of leaving and separation and arriving and missing loved ones Mm -hmm. uh, and yearning for those you've left behind. And uh, in this particular instance, uh, though not in all instances, tragically, uh, but in this one, uh, this immigrant story is also a love story that ends in reunions with loved ones. So I, um, I was just really struck by when I started interviewing the men who I'd known for years um, and who I represented for years, um, when they started talking about their lives in India and what they left behind during these interviews, they talked about their loved ones. They talked about their wives. They talked about their girlfriends, you know, um, the worker I talked about, Ebi Raju, you know, he was resisting um, his mother's efforts to put him in an arranged marriage. He didn't want to be married. He, he didn't think it was his time. And then he accidentally talked to uh, his, um, you know, his mother's candidate as his bride-to-be on the phone. And in a few seconds over the phone, he fell in love. Now, that's an extraordinary story, and you're right. Uh, deep in the darkness of the man camp in Mississippi, that's the burning light that Abby clung to. That's what kept him going, was the memory of that phone call and many others. Um, you know, he was forbidden uh, to meet his bride-to-be, um, except in a heavily chaperoned family situation. He couldn't meet with her one-on-one uh, before the wedding night. But uh, he remembered those phone calls where they told jokes and sang to each other. There's another character in the book, um, who uh, falls in love with uh, uh, with a high school sweetheart, and they, uh, you know, uh, carry on a clandestine romance for years. And uh, when the time comes, 
he asks for his high school sweetheart's um, hand in marriage. Well, her father, who's uh, you know from a higher station than him socially, uh, says, "Look, okay, if you want to marry my daughter, go make something of yourself." Mm-hmm. And um, and he decides that he is. He's going to make something of himself. He's going to become not a doctor, not a lawyer, not an engineer. Something even better. Something the girl's father will never be able to say no to, which is an American. And that's why he comes to America. So I just think these kinds of stories, um, you know, the reason they're universal is we all understand that we will do anything when we fall in love and we want to, you know, uh, go get that person's hand when, when we fall in love. We will go anywhere, do anything, and that's really what these men do. They do it for love of family, for love of not just the, the women in their lives, but their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their unborn future children. They do it out of love for that. And that that's what makes them uh, resilient, uh, deep in a man camp, um, working round-the-clock shifts, surrounded by barbed wire fences. Yeah, love captures all, and I'm really pleased that you made an important theme of the book. Uh, but one of the stories you weave into this book is your own story. Uh, it's a personal story and it's also an immigration story. Uh, why was it important for you to weave your own story into the narrative of the book? Yeah, you know, I uh, I was really surprised that I tumbled into writing my own story. I initially thought this book was going to uh, read more like a journalistic account. Um, certainly I was there, I would be around in the narrative a little bit, um, but I didn't expect what what I wound up putting into the book now, which is um, the way that my own personal immigration crisis paralleled the crisis of the men, and the way that my own complicated love story was connected to my immigration crisis, um, leading me to have my own incredible vulnerabilities during the course of um, the campaign and the events that unfolded in the book. You know, I started off thinking I wouldn't be in it, um, but then I stu- soon realized two things. Firstly, I realized that, you know, uh, in nonfiction, the reader actually needs a reliable narrator, a mm-hmm. tour guide, a Virgil, if you will. You know, you need someone um, to take you into uh, the lives of the men. And explain the Indian customs and the you know the the reasons why uh, the mother's uh, order to have an arranged marriage holds so much power over the son's head, and and, and why um, that son might want to go to America uh, as a result of being given those orders you know to earn money and raise a family. So uh, there were worlds in the book: the world of India, the world of a labor camp in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, uh, the world of a shipyard where an oil rig is being built. Um, These are worlds I know very deeply, Mm -hmm. and I can be your tour guide, and I can lead you in, uh, be your interpreter, as it were. That's one of the reasons I wound up in the book. But as soon as I wound up in the book for that reason, then I realized that I had to be an interesting character. And interesting characters in books are never perfect people. Interesting characters are people who are flawed, people who are evolving, people who are growing, people who are changing, people who have problems, and not small problems, but high-stakes problems. Mm -hmm. And I actually had all that and was all that during the events of the book, um, and I needed to put that in the book 
um, in order to sustain the reader's interest. There was also a deeper reason, Moose, which was that, you know, if I was going to ask, and I did, for this book, I asked my subjects, these Indian workers, um, to reveal so much, so deeply of their lives, to reveal uh, their hurts, their losses, their loves, their deprivations. And if I was going to do that, ask them for that, if they were going to reveal that to me, then how could I not reveal all of that about myself? So I, I decided to do that. Yeah, and it does lend authenticity to the book, and I'm sure also kept your interest in writing it because it had resonance in yourself. And, uh, you know, that brings authenticity to the author, and I'm, I'm glad you did that. Uh, shifting now to, and I'm sure a lot of people, the first thing they'll read about your book is the title, The Great Escape. Uh, how did you come to that choice for your title? Well, in many ways, um, The Great Escape is the central event of the book. Um, you know, when I got that midnight mysterious phone call from an anonymous source um, that led me to a labor camp in Mississippi, um, I started to meet clandestinely with the 500 workers um, in the camps. Um, these were two labor camps, the main one in Mississippi, another one in Texas, and in both, uh, a large Mississippi oil rig builder was holding workers in what a federal court would come to recognize later as forced labor. Mm -hmm. And um, the men were recruited on false promises of green cards and, um, and um, good jobs, but were toiling away on temporary visas, uh, living you know, in trailers on company property. And... Um, when I, you know, when I started partnering with the men, um, you know, the, the big question they asked me was, well, what can you do for us? What, what can we do? Um, one of the men I met was uh, a man called Rajan. He was a worker, and he was also the kind of partner that a labor organizer dreams of. He was an extraordinary, um, you know, bright, brilliant worker, and he had led uh, strikes. He had been part of actions um, to improve labor conditions in other places around the world, in the Middle East, in Azerbaijan. And he came to me and said in a secret meeting, he said, well, what do we need to do? Do we need to strike? And I explained that, well, in this case, a strike won't be helpful. You strike for things that a workplace can give you. You strike for things a company has the power to produce for you. That's the basis of labor action. In this case... Um, the workers needed to stay in the United States, but the company was not in any position to give them green cards, to give them the pathway to stay. Uh, so I described the real path, which would be uh, to come forward and to, um, you know, and to uh, report the company to the Department of Justice on... Um, uh, on charges of human trafficking, for the crime of human trafficking. In order to do that, though, the men would have to get out of the labor camp. That's what made it necessary to escape. So uh, over the course of several months, Rajan and I um, engineered the great escape that is the title of the book. We engineered an escape um, that could easily be in a heist movie. Uh, without giving too much away, it involved... Um, lots and lots of mini bar bottles of wild turkey whiskey as bribes uh, to, to security guards. Yeah. It involved uh, dozens and dozens of boxes 
of um, flavored cigars from Mississippi gas stations, more bribes. And we created a pretext, which was an elaborate but completely fictitious Indian wedding to ferry 500 men out of labor camps, five at a time, um, under the noses of the guards. Um, That's what happened at the center of the book. Uh, And then we were faced with a problem, which was where to hide the men. Um, You know, we we filed the DOJ complaint, hid the men, and then started on our long march uh, to Washington. I'm not sure you noticed on page 44 of your book, it says the great escape from the stations of their birth. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a very interesting connection between the great escape that you're talking about that led to the title and the great escape that the workers were thinking about in their minds when they left India. Did you think about that when you're drawing the connection? Very much so, yes, very much so. Um, the, the great escape that, that, that leaps from the page is, of course, the, the central big, um, you know, uh, Ocean's Eleven level heist where um, workers were basically, you know, under cover of darkness, uh, uh, you know, stealing away from the labor camps. Um, that was one great escape. But the deeper great escape uh, was exactly the, the line you read. It was... Um, you know, this idea that this recruiter uh, who arrived in the United States uh, with a labor broker and an Indian uh, labor recruiter, this trio of recruiters, um, when they offered the workers a green card and good jobs and the chance to settle in America, um, the reason that was worth $20,000, the reason workers sold ancestral land, the reason they borrowed from uh, you know, violent loan sharks um, was because they thought it might be their one chance. In fact, the one chance in a generation for their family to escape from the stations of their birth. Ebi Raju, you know, graduated eighth grade or ninth grade. His first job was fixing roofs in Kerala for a dollar a day. You know, he worked for five years in Mumbai. Uh, he then went to the Middle East. His years and years of migrant labor could not pay for his father's retirement and, um, and couldn't pay for you know, all of the expenses um, that his family was, was experiencing in India. He needed a great escape from the station of his birth. And that's what he and 500 other people thought um, this was. Not just a green card to come to America, but uh, a, a way out of... Uh, the kind of very, very cemented position in Indian society um, that they could never get out of without the chance to come to the United States. Yeah. So the freedom journey, which is sort of at the heart of this book, doesn't, a reader doesn't get into it till almost the middle of the book. And you describe setting up your first clandestine meeting with a bunch of workers in a church. And you were surprised what you saw there. Just Tell us what that meeting was like and what it led to. Well, the man who called me in his very particular uh, Punjabi English said uh, that um, he was willing to meet me, but it had to be a secret meeting. No one could know about it. And um, he wouldn't tell me his name, but he would be willing to tell me the name of a church that I could find. Um, It was the church that the company allowed him to go to every Sunday. That was his one narrow little 
um, few hours of freedom was the ability to go to that church. He said the name of the church was the Secret Catholic Church. So I went on a hunt and I looked for a secret Catholic church uh, in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. I found it. It was actually uh, called the Sacred Heart Catholic Church. It was in Pascagoula, a shipyard town. Um, And uh, walking up to the door of that church, I thought I was going to meet with one, maybe three workers. Um, I had uh, really prepared for this meeting. Even if it was going to be three workers, I I decided I was really going to recruit them. I was going to, you know, do really well. So I called my mother. I broke down. I, I had been pretty cut off from my family, from India generally at a personal level, um, but I broke down that morning and called my mother um, and uh, asked her to walk me through a Hindi speech that I could give to these workers to enlist them and win their confidence. My Hindi at this point, Moose, was very, very rusty uh, from, uh, uh, from misuse. It was like a, a broken down car that hasn't been driven in eight years. Um, you know, I, I considered myself an American in all but passport um, and hadn't used my, my mother tongue. Um, but here I was with a really practiced Hindi speech, opening the door of the secret Catholic church, expecting to find three workers, and there waiting for me were a hundred workers. Um, I was shocked. I, I went up there. Uh, I recited my uh, very, very uh, rehearsed speech. Uh, I did it uh, beautifully. It, it, you know, it sounded, uh, I, sort of reaching back to my acting days, it sounded like uh, it was really off book and, and leap, leapt off the page as if I was coming up with it extemporaneously, except it failed miserably. The workers didn't understand a word of what I said <laughs> because they were actually from South India. South India. They spoke Tamil and, and Malayalam. Somebody raised his hand and asked me um, you know, to, to do it all, all over again in English. I did. Um, and that meeting was a disaster. Workers streamed out. I couldn't answer any of their questions. I had no plan for them to get them out of captivity. Um, but one worker sitting deep in the room uh, reached out to me a few weeks later. That was Rajan, the man who taught me um, you know, the pressures on the men. He taught me the various aspects of the scheme. And he also taught me how to cook. And over a series of extraordinary secret meals, uh, we engineered the great escape uh, that's at the center of the book. And the opposite of clandestine meeting was a very public event that happened after uh, the Great Escape, uh, when workers marched to the company gates with TV cameras and all that after they had been vindicated. What did that moment feel like? Oh, that was extraordinary. The night after the workers uh, escaped, they were um, you know, hiding out in a hotel room. The next morning, uh, we did a very unexpected thing. Uh, we marched right back to the company gates, this time uh, gloriously lit by, uh, you know, Mississippi sun. It was a clear day. The men were wearing their hard hats and the blue sky and clouds were reflecting on, on the surface of these uh, red and blue hard hats. And, um, and the men marched back to the company gates um, and took their hard hats off. And in a symbolic show of leaving the company, proudly leaving the company, threw their hard hats in the air at the company gates. Um, And then uh, we learned the police was on their way, so we clambered onto uh, buses and sped out to New Orleans where we hid 
and waited for the Department of Justice to answer our uh, criminal complaint. Yeah, yeah. So in the uh, people who have tried to organize and protect workers, you know, in various sectors of our economy and found very difficult to find success, uh, what do you think made your uh, campaign for the Indian workers at Signal successful? It was obviously very good intelligence. It was using communication skills. It was using uh, marching uh, to Washington as a tool. But just describe the, the multifaceted campaign that you led, which led to the success. Well, I think it was a series of choices, um, some uh, that we made uh, with, with a sense of strategy and, and calculation, um, some that we were pushed into because of circumstances, um, and some choices that we would never have dreamed of making, but, but when push came to shove, um, you know, it, it was on the basis of pure instinct, um, we made certain choices. Um, you know, uh, right at the beginning, um, it was really clear that the workers were undocumented. The company that had promised them green cards was never going to give them green cards. Uh, and the choice to escape from the labor camp was the first really important choice. There, there was a, a deep debate among the workers. Many of them wanted to stay working for the company but quietly file a Department of Justice complaint uh, and then, you know, uh, somehow speak to government inspectors or law enforcement officials when they came knocking. Well, that wasn't going to work. And Rajan and other workers helped me convince the workforce, um, you know, that, uh, that we really needed to um, escape from the labor camps altogether uh, so that you know, so that the Department of Justice was really clear that these workers didn't want to have it both ways. They were willing to leave the company. Um, later down the line, the, 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 the uh, choice to march. I mean, we were in a hotel in New Orleans. Um, you know, once we escaped, once the workers escaped for the, from the labor camp, the question was, where do you put 500 brown men in Mississippi or Louisiana um, while we wait for mm-hmm. the uh, Department of Justice to send an investigator, right? Um, well, the only place we could do that was in a hotel in New Orleans that was in disrepair. And we had to really hide because police were circling, police who uh, worked moonlighted as uh, security guards for the company. Um, the One of the principal labor recruiters uh, who had brought the workers from India was actually a Mississippi cop turned labor brokers uh, labor uh, broker who had deep connections into police departments in that part of the country, um, and then other contractors were circling. So we had to hide the men. But at some point, eight days later, there was radio silence from the Department of Justice. Um, the uh, you know the the FBI had called once, but they had vanished, and so we decided it was now time to come out of hiding. It was now time to come out as undocumented, but also as deserving of status uh, to the U.S. government. So we came out and we decided to march. Um, Like uh, many freedom fighters before them, these these workers marched from New Orleans to Washington. That was a a tough uh, journey, but a necessary one. And that really increased 
the visibility and focus of the press, you know, on these workers. It was also really, really important um, to um, really build deep ties with the civil rights movement, with civil rights leaders as we marched through the South. Many of my mentors who were civil rights leaders uh, became the mentors of these men and uh, connecting their struggle as immigrants to a much longer, deeper struggle for racial justice, for civil rights um, that continues to happen in America, continues to go forward in America. That was really an element um, of the men's yeah. success. You know? yeah. And the multifaceted campaign is very important for people to understand. I tell all young lawyers that you can prepare the best brief, you can prepare the best witnesses, but make sure that you have a good reporter covering the story. There was a very important New York Times story in the Signal case that galvanized a lot of public attention. Spend a minute to talk about that. Yeah, that was absolutely critical. You know, um, at the heart of the the campaign was the story the men were telling, um, which was the way that recruiters on behalf of the company brought them to the United States, promising green cards, but delivering temporary work um, visas in labor camps. The men had paid $20,000 for them. Those were the men's facts. The, the company was telling a very different story. The company was saying that the men always knew what the deal was. The company had no idea that the money had been charged, um, that it was the recruiters to blame, not this Mississippi oil rig builder. Um, and uh, at a very pivotal moment, while the men were on a on a 23-day uh, hunger strike, the New York Times reported on the men. Uh, a reporter named Julia Preston, who, was, uh, who had previously been a, a war reporter, covered the Balkans and other places, uh, was now the New York Times immigration reporter. And she covered the story. And that really caught the attention of um, Democrats in Congress. It caught the attention of key committees that had jurisdiction uh, over the Homeland Security, um, the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department. Um, it, it, that story really, um, you know, took what was a, uh, you know, a, a Mississippi event and turned it into a national question of uh, how was the, the guest worker program uh, being used. And it, it gave a, a kind of, um, uh, it gave... You know, it was reporting, but it gave a kind of legitimacy uh, to the men's allegations. Yeah, took it from the backwaters of the Mississippi to the front page of the New York Times. Exactly. And that changes the profile. But talk about the Department of Justice, which was at the center of this investigation campaign. And you mentioned it went sort of radio silent for a little while. And suddenly, what there was obviously not revealing everything about the book, uh, but there was a smoking gun event in that investigation that changed the face. Just tell us as much as you can. Yes, well, you know, um, the, the expectation we had was that the Department of Justice would investigate the men, um, would investigate the men's claims um, that they were trafficking victims, um, that, um, you know, there's uh, legislation called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act that gives the Department of Justice jurisdiction to respond uh, to complaints and to allegations of trafficking. Um, when the victim witnesses are undocumented, the Department of Justice 
you know, has the power to ask Homeland Security to grant temporary status so that the victims and witnesses can stay in the country despite being undocumented so that they can stay in the country um, to participate in an investigation. We expected the men overnight to get that status. And then, uh, as the investigation was underway, we expected to file uh, uh, you know, um, uh, applications for special humanitarian visas designated for trafficking victims. Now, all we were saying is, we were bringing the complaints, the DOJ would investigate, other agencies of the U.S. government, Homeland Security, and others would help. Uh, and if the uh, veracity of the men's claims, uh, if the veracity of the men's claims was proven, then they would get these protections. Well, for some reason, the Department of Justice never switched on the basic protections. Um, and then instead of weeks, uh, the investigation took months to, to get started. Once it was started, it took years to conclude. And we didn't know why. And then we found out that we were actually up against uh, an agent in the federal government, an adversary, uh, an opponent of the workers in the federal government with corrupt ties to the company, a person with deep hidden motivations to deport and jail the workers, someone who, even as we were marching in D.C., um, someone deep inside the federal government uh, who was, through his machinations, unraveling our plans, even as we were entering our D.C., we found ourselves surveilled by immigrations and customs enforcement. Uh, we found ourselves um, you know, up against a dragnet of agents uh, led by a man who was trying to make criminals of the men rather than looking at the men as victims of a crime. He was trying to cast them as the criminals. Um, and, and we didn't know at the time that's uh, what we were up against. But at, at, at some point in the book, um, there's a smoking gun that I don't want to give away that changes everything um, and, and winds up you know, becoming the life-changing, game-changing event in, in the lives of these men. Exactly. So everyone has to read the book to know how the smoking gun comes alive, but it involves uh, an ICE agent called Admiral Ladner. And there are three very interesting characters in the book who are not obviously very good people, who are part of the perpetrators of this. This is Alvin Ladner, this is Malvin Burnett, and a guy called Devon, uh, I think Switcher Devon, who runs the bigger recruiting firm. And you somehow managed to humanize even these three people. Just tell me why that was important for you to do. Well, you know, I'm a deep believer in um, seeing all the points of view of a situation. In telling these stories, I wanted to make the immigrant workers complicated. Uh, they're not saints. They're, they're, they're something better, more interesting. They're full human beings. Um, and then the people who created the scheme, the recruiters, uh, the people who benefited from it, the company, the people who um, colluded with the company, the ICE agents, principally one of them, I wanted to see them as full human beings and understanding, understand their motivations. So, so the, the, the key recruiter um, is a fascinating person. The person right at the center of the scheme um, was a liberal New Orleans attorney named Malvern Burnett. He was an idealist. Um, he thought of himself as the immigrant's best friend. And in fact, he tells the story himself of being a young boy in Louisiana, uh, growing up on a horse farm, uh, when his parents, the good Catholics that they are, take in a pair of teenage 
Cuban refugees. And those dinner table conversations at their home with those refugees stay with Malvern. Even after uh, the refugees leave, uh, Malvern carries them with him all the way to the point where he starts his own immigration law practice. But then Hurricane Katrina hits, and it ruins Malvern financially and personally. And so, you know, I think out of a sense of self-preservation, he partners with two others, a Mississippi uh, cop-turned-labor broker and an Indian labor recruiter, and they come up with this scheme to supply these workers um, at low cost to this Mississippi oil rig builder. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the ICE agent is another fascinating character. I, I wound up learning a lot about him. Um, and surprisingly, all the things in the book that I know about him, the intimate portrait that, that I write, um, actually comes from him. I reached out to him, and he met with me, and we sat down and built a kind of friendship, which continues till this day. So I, I, I'm just a huge believer in, um, in, you know, stepping into the shoes of even people who are uh, opponents and trying to really understand and write from their point of view, uh, because that makes for not just a more interesting book, but a more interesting world. We, we've, we, we shouldn't ever lose the art of understanding uh, the world from someone else's point of view, even, even from the point of view of a person uh, whose actions uh, might be anathema to us, who, whose actions we might um, deride. We, we as, as, as good human beings, have to understand what got people to the point where they did things that we might think of as inhuman. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people think of yours and Signal as a, as a very important success story. But... Tell me how much of an outlier is this uh, that we hear about uh, very unfortunate conditions in which workers, especially temporary workers, work not only in the uh, post-climate uh, disasters but in the farms of our country, in the shipyards of our country. How much of an outlier is your success story and what is the state of workers in these occupations today? Well, you're right. I mean, the, the, the workers at the center of this book had extraordinary successes. Um, you know, these are people who started in a, a labor camp um, and wound up free and whose children are now thriving. I mean, that, to some extent, is such a deeply American story. You know, um, like many, many immigrants around this world, um, the the Indian workers at the beginning of this book um, decide to go to America because of a dream, not just a dream for themselves, but a dream for their parents, for their children. Um, They arrive into a nightmare. They're in a labor camp. They struggle for years. Um, And the reason that's all worth it is, is not just because of them, but because of what their children can then inherit. So Ebi Raju, for example, you know, his American journey started in a labor camp. And um, then at the end of the book, he is reunited Mm -hmm. with his wife and his son, the son he hasn't seen for three years. Um, And a few months ago, you know, um, Ebby and his wife sent me pictures of themselves as first-time voters, not just in the United States, but 
anywhere in any country in their lives they voted for the first time in these in this past uh, midterm election in Houston, a state that really matters, where their mm-hmm. view matters. Um, and and just two nights ago, I got um, you know I got a beautiful picture from that son of Ebby's who was three when Ebby met him, who's uh, many years older now. Uh, you know, voraciously reading, proudly reading his father's story in a book that arrived uh, at his doorstep, you know, um, the book that he's going to take to school and share with his teachers. And that is a story that can happen only in America. That's because of the American promise. That's because of American institutions, as imperfect as they are. um, That's because, uh, you know, there, there is a fight to be had. um, And, and while we see, um, you know, a book like this, a story like this, is about both the best and the worst uh, in America. And while that's true in America, it's also true that that dream, um, you know, that dream becomes real for far too many, and that these workers uh, had me, these workers found me, these workers then were connected to attorneys, they were connected to the New York Times, there was a three-year campaign around them, um, they pushed hard and, and, and reached out for all the levers of democracy, protests, uh, you, you know, marches on Washington. But many, many workers can't do that. There are workers um, who are toiling away in farms uh, or in poultry uh, factories, um, workers uh, who are working in the healthcare system or in restaurants, you know, people who feed us and transport our goods uh, and take care of us who don't have labor protections, yeah. who don't have full status, and most importantly, who are unrecognized Americans. They're Americans in all but passport. They're Americans in their labor. That is the greatest passport of all. They're feeding and taking care of and building America, but they're unrecognized as Americans. And I, I think that's the um, unfulfilled promise of our country, and that's what we all have to work towards. In that sense, this story um, is an outlier. It's the exception rather than the rule. Uh, But what these workers got at the end of this book should be available. uh, That type of recognition should be available to all immigrant workers in America. Yeah. In the last uh, two minutes we have, I mean, many of our viewers will know that in the, uh, in 1960, there was a very prominent movie or documentary made called The Harvest of Shame Mm -hmm. by Edwin Murrow which sort of woke people to the plight of temporary workers. And at the end of that documentary, we ended a program called the Bracero Program about temporary workers. A lot of people would ask today, isn't, are, these, are these programs inherently wrong and shouldn't we just end them as we ended the Bracero Program? What's your quick response to that? Well, Harvest of Shame uh, is an extraordinary model. I hope that this book sparks that kind of debate about the temporary visa program that we have, which is in essence, you know, um, uh, uh, an exercise in a national forgetting of the Bracero program and in a way setting up a similar program of of similar means um, for temporary workers. What we really need in the United States is, look, we need workers. Uh, We need every local worker to have a good job. And we need training programs for those workers. But that's not enough. We also need migrant workers to arrive, but they have to arrive with good labor conditions and at the same wages as U.S. workers, or they'll undercut U.S. workers. 
And they have to arrive with choices and dignity and full freedom. They have to arrive um, into, uh, you know, an American workplace um, that is free and fair. Otherwise, uh, we're just building the next generation of American wealth uh, on a captive or near-captive labor force. And that's not who we are as a country. Um, that's not who we should push into being by uh, people in the economy who want to, you know, benefit from from captive labor. And, and that's what I hope this book, that's the kind of policy, uh, you know, um, change that I hope this book will spark. Thank you so much, Saket. The Great Escape, a story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. It's an excellent read. It's a thrilling book, but also gets us in touch with the stories of these workers and for us as Americans as to what challenges we face as we come in contact with these workers. Thank you very much for writing the book and thank you for coming and speaking to our viewers today. Thank you, Moose. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>